Acts chapter 2. We are in between a sermon series. We just finished 1 John. We'll be turning our attention soon to the book of Proverbs and looking at wisdom, how to get it and how to live it. But this morning, I'd like to do something I've wanted to do for a long time and put the spotlight in history, church history. I want to talk about an individual who stood in the gap that we don't talk about him enough, but we should. So our key verse, our springboard, if you will, is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You will recognize this as the verse that I've set for this year for us to focus on. So background, uh, the spirit has come. The Lord is building his church. The disciples have been commissioned. Their job, our job, make disciples. They are commissioned. They are empowered by and unified in the Holy Spirit. And here's what that looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. The rapid growth of this movement along with its radical message, would unsettle the religious establishment. Soon, the apostles, the leaders, were opposed and persecuted. Flip to Acts chapter 5. We have a very telling statement. Acts chapter 5, verse 40, the apostles are doing what apostles do. They are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they had called in the apostles, that is the religious establishment, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they they pulled them in, told them to keep quiet, put a muzzle on it, And do not speak about this Jesus anymore. And to show our determination in that, they beat them. This is the price that they paid. Verse 41, please notice their response. They left the presence of the council dejected and angry that the rights know. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now remember, they were told specifically in no uncertain terms, do not speak about Jesus. Yeah, right. Verse 42. Watch this. Notice how Luke puts this, by the way. Luke is a very detail-oriented physician. And every day in the temple... And from house to house, they did not cease and, uh, from teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Do you see what Luke did just there? So the apostles beat up, told not to speak about Jesus. So, so Luke makes it sure that you understand exactly what they did, what their course of action was. Every day, every day, in the temple... In a formal setting, from house to house, in an informal setting, they didn't stop. They did not stop 
talking about Christ. Teaching and preaching the singular focus of the gospel that the Christ, the Messiah, has come and his name is Jesus. Now, this pattern would include one more. Oh, no, no. So now I want you to go to Acts chapter 9. Throughout the early years, there would be persecution, growth, periods of peace, and deepening. It's kind of a rhythm, right? The persecution, the opposition that was first directed against the apostles now became common for everyone. We know there was a guy named Saul who hated the church with all of his heart. Who got special permission to travel outside of Israel to persecute and harass Christians. It didn't go so well for him, but it went well for us. Notice how Luke describes this pattern. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. There's a pattern. There's persecution. There's peace in the life of the church. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church is growing. The church is suffering. The church is comforted by the Holy Spirit. The church fears God rather than men. So the church does not back down, does not shut up, does not stop talking about Christ and living it out. So this pattern would include one more element. Peter and Paul spoke to it. False teachers. So the church is growing. The church gets opposed. But then even inside the church, there arises false teachers who will peddle false teachings, most often for their own benefit. So great attention must be given for the health and the growth of the church. Let's listen to what Jude has to say. This is the second to last book in your Bible. It only has one chapter. Verse 3. Jude says this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Those are my highlights, obviously. So Jude says, I wanted to write to you about all the wonderful things about our common salvation, which obviously others have done. But I felt prompted when I actually sat down to write. To urge you to contend, to contend earnestly for the faith. There's an article there. It's defined. It doesn't change from generation to generation. It is the faith. Now, in the original, there's a string of adjectives which modify the noun, which is faith. It is the once for all delivered to the saints faith. 
once for all, never again, delivered to the saints. Not just to special people, per se, but to the saints, to all of us. He goes on. Why do I write you this? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Hone in on that. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is obviously the heart of the gospel. So what does a false teacher do? They, they pervert who Christ is, what he did, and his relationship to us. False teachers have always and will always pervade the church inside and out. The church moved forward, often under great duress. But all of that changed dramatically with the most remarkable development. So as you read the book of Acts, which is the history, if you will, of the early, early church, you will notice there's no concluding comments. Luke kind of leaves it open-ended. Why? Because the history of the church is still being written today, right? It's an ongoing history of the church. So fast forward a couple hundred years or so. In the early 300s, the church was brutally persecuted as the emperor was determined to quell in-house arguments. He actually was like, you know, these people who refuse to bow their knee to me, you know, say there's another Lord named Jesus. He just wanted to snuff them out. But something astonishing happened as his successor as emperor would take a different approach to Christians. In 306 AD, Constantine the Great became Roman emperor. In short order, he officially tolerated Christians. And by his own Expression would become one. He would embrace Christianity. Later getting baptized. The most important thing for you to know is that he embraced Christianity. So picture this. Hundreds of years. The church is hunted. And on the run. There is no time to catch your breath. No time to do anything but to be faithful every single day. The persecution that was unleashed on Christians was so brutal at times. But everything changed when Constantine said, actually, I like this. I'm embracing it. Well, he's an emperor, so in his mind, well, everybody should embrace it. And so Christianity went to the sect that was persecuted and hunted to the sect that was celebrated. There were a few new things that took place. Church buildings being one of them. There was no such thing as a church building. They would meet, as Luke said earlier, in the temple from house to house. That's how they did it. 
But under Constantine, there is our subject of note today. His name is Athanasius. He was a bishop from Egypt. In our little history focus today, Athanasius, he's a protagonist. And then there's a guy named Arius. I'll call him the antagonist. Pictured here with St. Nicholas. More on that in just a moment. Constantine convened a council to clear up some of these disagreements within Christianity because he then became interested in these things. I mean, it's pretty obvious he didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But he said, I'm going to have the experts come in and we're going to talk about this central issue of who is Jesus Christ. The Council of Nicaea. Now you need to know that Arius essentially denied the deity of Christ. History tells us, if you look closely at this, that is why St. Nicholas is punching him in the face. This is what history tells us. It might just be legend. But he didn't like what he had to say at this little council with over 300 bishops. So he got up and punched him. But you need to remember something about church history. Because this is oftentimes misunderstood, especially at the very beginning. They had to codify things. They had to make certain things official. For example, they regularly read what we call the New Testament in the churches. So Paul's letter to Rome would also be read in Ephesus or in Philippi. There was a common understanding That what the apostles had written was the word of God. No one was surprised at this. But they said, we need to sit down and kind of make this official because we've been on the run all this time. Also, key truths about the faith. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? You see, Arius was pushing something that was contrary to what was commonly accepted. But Arius was a very charismatic personality. People liked him. People gravitated towards him. But he was preaching heresy. So let's look at this spirited discussion. It actually focused on two words. The Greek transliterations behind me. Two words. The second one on the bottom has one letter added to it, which changes the meaning completely. And here's what it is. It has to do with what we would call the the being or the essence or the substance of Christ, who he is. And bear with me, this is going to sound like a deep philosophical, theological discussion. It's really, really important. And it's why I'm highlighting Athanasius this morning. You see, Athanasius 
would assert that Jesus Christ is himself God. The Son is fully divine. Remember what we celebrate around Christmas time? Emmanuel, you, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Athanasius wanted to articulate the beauty and the transcendence of who God is, his triunity, which of course runs contrary to how we even think. But again, that's why we worship him. We don't put him in a box so that we can understand neatly everything about him. What Athanasius was putting his finger on was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was fully God and fully man. He fully entered into our humanity and though veiled, he never stopped, it's impossible, being God. Now, Arius, he was very sincere. But that one little letter in English, the letter I, he had a different notion about Christ. That he was the same essence of God, kind of, but not really, not completely. You see, Athanasius was saying that the Son shared the same essence, being as God, because he is himself God. There is no distinction in that sense. Athanasius said, well, yeah, there is. He's a good guy. Like maybe above everybody else, but he's not himself God. So that literally was the discussion. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But that's why legend says St. Nicholas got up and punched him in the face. He's like, you need to sit down. But here's what I want you to understand. Athanasius was not getting all philosophical and getting annoyed because he wanted his narrow view of who God is. What they were talking about had enormous repercussions. Athanasius would argue the obvious. Christ came to be our Savior. Christ came because we cannot save ourselves. If Christ be not God, he is an insufficient Savior. It is the very heart of the gospel. It is the very core of the gospel that we need a Savior. That's kind of the whole message of Christianity. And when they said his name will be Emmanuel, God with us, they meant that. That was on purpose because it held meaning. When Isaiah spoke of the Messiah, remember Acts chapter 9, what we looked at? 
The apostles were saying that that Jesus is the Christ. It's kind of inverted. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Isaiah 9, every year, Christmas time, we, we say it, we sing it. His name shall be Emmanuel. His name shall be Mighty God. I know I say this every year. There is not a Jewish planet, a Jewish parent on earth, on planet earth, that ever had the audacity to name their child Mighty God. So here's the prophet saying, yeah, that's what his name will be. Mary. His name will be Mighty God. Because he is God in human flesh. Philippians chapter 2. So this contentious meeting, this meeting of all of these religious leaders in the end became almost a non-event. Because over with over 300 present, only two objected to what Athanasius had to say. And you need to know that because the church held to and confessed, as we saw in Jude, the faith. The church held to the faith. And now things had slowed down for just a moment and they had to get it down. So that for generations to come, we would stand upon the truth and see the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So obviously Arius was one of the objectors and his buddy as well. You might recognize these words from the Nicene Creed. A creed is a confession that comes out of these type meetings. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, Contrary to Jehovah's Witnesses. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That one statement is what Athanasius laid his life down, so to say, for. You will not cross this. Being of one substance with the Father. That is a clear declaration that the Son is God and that God rescued us from our sins. One of the words you might hear used is a hypostatic union, meaning the very essence, this is important, the very essence of who the Son is, of who Jesus Christ is, is that he is fully and completely man. That is, he entered into our humanity. He had emotions. He hungered. He thirsted. He grieved. And he wound up a bloody mess on the cross for us. And trust me, he felt everything that came his way. Do not forget, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he sweat drops of blood, that's not just a nice little thing to remember. He knew 
He knew what was coming his way. And I submit to you, it was not the physical pain that, that was on his mind only. Because many people have died a horrific death. That's not what he was, what was on his mind. He knew from all eternity the perfect fellowship that he had with his father. He would now become the object of his wrath. That's the gospel. He would literally stand in our stead and take the wrath of God on our sins on himself. Why did he cry out on the cross? Why is there Psalm 22 that was quoted on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment when he died for you and for me, he not only absorbed my sin, he became sin for me. And the glorious transaction, 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for me. Why? So that I might become the righteousness of God in him. We sometimes don't ponder that last bit enough. He doesn't say that we were slipped in the back door. He suffered for me so I could, you know, maybe get in. No one's looking quick. Let let him in. Not at all. That I might become the righteousness of God. That is my position. I am the righteousness of God. Obviously, not because I'm good, but because of the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ, the, the sinless Son of God, bypassed the line of Adam, born of a virgin. He stood in my place. He got what I had. I got what he is. So when Paul says, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's why. When Paul says at the end of that chapter, I am persuaded, I am convinced that nothing, nobody will separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ, that's why. My union with Christ. And it all comes down to something that is very, very fundamental and mind-blowing, and that's this, that Jesus Christ... The Son of God, fully human, fully, though veiled on earth, never stopped being who he truly is, which is God. He's the only one who could rescue us. He's the only one who could suffer for us. Why does this matter? We spent a few months last year asking the question and answering it. Why did Christ die? So let's look at everyone's favorite word in recent territory. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Is not us word to, is not God word from us, but us word from God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. That he would be the satisfaction of God's holiness, of his justice, of his righteousness. Saints, there was no one who could take my place but Jesus Christ. No one. And remember, this verse is often misunderstood. He's not saying that, wow, this is love, that someone would lay down their life. Because we know many good people have laid down their lives for other people. And we acknowledge the beauty of that. It's who he's talking about. 
that God himself came. God himself took the form of his own creation of a servant and humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. There are three things that, in particular, I want us to walk away with when you think of this wonderful figure in church history by the name of Athanasius. Number one, Athanasius taught us to be a good theologian. Spoiler alert, theologians are not a special little group of people off in an ivory tower that we can't even compare ourselves to. A theologian is every single Christian. Theology, as Spurgeon said, is the queen of all the sciences. It's the study of God. Who he is, his beauty, his glory, his majesty. Every Christian is and should grow in being a theologian. Growing in the knowledge of who God is, setting our minds to meditate and reflect on his glory and his beauty and who he is. It is the anecdote, or the antidote, I should say, to our sufferings and our challenges that we have in life. It's pretty much the book of Psalms. Setting our hearts to think about the Lord. Athanasius showed us that attention to detail matters. There are obviously matters that we ought not to separate on, but we, we need to be able to identify key truths that cannot be misrepresented. Athanasius put his finger on one of them. Who is Jesus Christ? Number two, Athanasius was willing to suffer for the truth. Throughout his ministry, five times he was exiled or banished. Athanasius loved the truth. Third thing I want you to walk away with is this. Athanasius was faithful to his people. In his case, the people that the Lord had put under his charge. If we tie these three together, Athanasius loved the truth. The truth matters. Truth is not relative. Jesus said, Romans 8, I mean John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. That's what the truth does. High priestly prayer, prayer, John 17, Jesus said, Father, sanctify, set them apart, grow them in your word or in your truth. Your word is truth. Our path of sanctification, of growing, of maturing, it is always in accordance with his word. That's why, back to John 8, Jesus said, you are my disciples indeed, if you continue in my word. So we don't deviate from the word. But Athanasius loved the truth. He loved the word. And he was willing to suffer for the sake of the truth. And he loved the people that God had put in his care. He so often said the reason why he came back to do the very thing that he was exiled for was because he loved his people and they needed a shepherd. So he would do it and he would get banished again. 
But saints, we all have people that God has put in our lives to care for, to nurture, to encourage, to support. May we be faithful in doing just that, even when we get kicked back. It is Father's Day. Dads, stay the course. Stay the course. Stand on the truth. Raise your kids in the truth. For those of you who play father figure to others as a mentor or otherwise, stay the course. You matter. So I commend to you this morning, Athanasius. You might know with my British background, my middle name actually is Thane. I spurned it growing up and now I kind of like it because it's, you know, kind of a derivative, I think, of Athanasius. But Athanasius is one of those people who showed us how to live honorably and nobly for the gospel of Christ. Would you guys bow and prepare your hearts for prayer? Oh, Lord, thank you. For the liberating truth of the gospel. Thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. To live and to die for us. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not our works, not our efforts, but faith and confidence in who Jesus is. And what he has done for us. Today Heavenly Father we pray. For our dads that you would encourage and strengthen them. We acknowledge the flip side. Those who long to be and are not. Those dads who are heartbroken today. Those who are heartbroken because of their dads. Oh Lord, strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.